Welcome to this special season of the Get Free podcast. It's an accompaniment to Dirge, Black and Indigenous Hemispheric Burial, a sound sculpture, which is a multimedia project curated by me, your host, Tao Lee Goff. In these five episodes, you will hear from collaborators on themes of stolen life and land in the Western Hemisphere. These conversations with experts on Black and Native studies informed a 30-minute video art installation that we produced as part of an architecture seminar at Cornell University. Dirge, a noun, a lament for the dead, a hymn, especially one forming a part of a funeral rite, a mournful song, piece of music, poem, or perhaps a sound sculpture. What is a sound sculpture, you might be asking? A sound sculpture is an intermedia and time-based art form in which sculpture or any kind of art object produces sound, or the reverse, in the sense that sound is manipulated in such a way as to create a sculptural as opposed to temporal form or mass. We imagined four bricks in the wall in the sound sculpture that symbolizes the different site-specific geographies, of departure to chart Black and Native life after multiple timelines of apocalypse throughout the Americas. Three groups of graduate students were assigned to curate their interpretation of a place-based sound sculpture. The four bricks represented are Manahata, the Caribbean, Ithaca, and the far future. Through experimentation with virtual reality, DJ equipment, augmented reality, spatial sound mixing, electronic rhythm composers, and 3D modeling, we were able to extend our current realities in order to pry apart the urgency of what BIPOC means, Black, Indigenous, and People of Color, as a key word for our times. Together, our group looked for new nonverbal forms of language for storytelling about hemispheric racial formation. The Dirge Collective examined from a spatial frame how Black and Indigenous life intersects in an arena determined by premature death because of the ongoing nature of European colonialism. The first conversation is with the former Dark Lab manager and myself, Tally Goff, and in it you will get a sense of the making of Dirge, the process of participation, as well as musings on what it means to teach and be project facilitators. Hello, my name is Tatiana Eshelman. I am the lab manager for Dark Laboratory. I'm just so glad that uh, we have this this chance to like reflect on what the semester has been, spring mm. 2021. Um, how did it feel for you, I guess, voluntarily being in class, having graduated last year in mm. 2020? I mean, I've always been a person that I really like love to learn. Like even aside from being in your class this semester, I've been, I mean, you know, I'm learning Korean. And so like every day I'll like teach myself like through lessons and stuff. So I'm a very... Um, into, I'm very into like a learning environment um, and I think what I really liked about your class was the fact that like I feel like the way that you teach is 
a little bit different um, than how a lot of my old professors at Cornell taught. Like even just like the fact that you gave your students a stipend and I don't know, I feel like there's just, um, there's something special about it. And so after you invited me to like, you know, come to your class, especially like knowing it's a class that's only going to be taught one time and like you had all these like guests coming in and like seeing like all the behind the scenes work that went into it, it was very much like a privilege in my opinion to be able to attend the class. Um, and I don't know, yeah, I feel like sitting in on it was just, it's really refreshing because my life right now, I think, is kind of a collection of a lot of different creative projects. Um, but what I really love about working for Dark Lab and also, again, going to the class is the fact that it kind of grounded me in um, a, like a, a deeper reality than what a lot of creative projects that I'm working on right now that all have to do with like fiction and like, you know, storytelling that I can like spin out of my head. I feel like I needed the class and I needed Dark Lab because it helps like remind me of the very real things that I still care about that I went to school to study for, you know, being an Africana major. It was really nice to like kind of continue that work um, and deepen my knowledge of everything, especially because like, you know, the class also had a focus on like indigenous life and that's something that I obviously don't know too, too much about, um, as I'm not like an indigenous person. Um, and so like being able to learn more about that and also, you know, hear more and actually speak to like, you know, like indigenous people that have devoted their entire lives to either like the study of their indigeneity or like the artistic expression of it was really, really special. Oh, that means so much, Tatiana. That's really beautiful to hear. Um, just because the class kind of came together last minute. Tim Murray, who teaches in English, um, you know, gave me the opportunity to to teach it. And I'm just so honored to have been able to have the budget to yeah. undertake something like this. Because yeah, each student received fifteen hundred dollars. They were chosen from a large pool of applicants and it just has me thinking about Black and Indigenous feminisms, Black and Indigenous futurisms, people like Grace Dillon, Nalo Hopkinson, and how we should be paid extra money to yeah. study and like put these two cultures in conversation. Yeah. So Tuesdays, 11.20 to 1.45 p.m. on Zoom. <laughs> it's such a lot of time to spend, yeah. you know, staring at your computer. But I always felt like we were running out of time to be able yeah. to discuss everything um, mm -hmm. because both subjects are so immense. And furthermore, like thinking them through together, like the enmeshed ways in which black and indigenous life meet, mm -hmm. a semester definitely isn't enough time to be able to digest, to process, to grieve yeah. for what this all yeah. means. Definitely, even like studying four years wasn't enough time, you know? Like that's the crazy part is like, having graduated and like looking back and being like, whoa, I still feel like I didn't get enough. You know, I feel like one thing that Africana professors are really, really good at is giving you so many readings because they know that you won't get to all of them, but they want yeah. to have you the material and the potential to have them that. Um, and like, that's one thing like Margaret Washington actually like sat me down and like said that was like, I just want to give you the tools to go about and survive and like have these conversations that you need to have and like be able to defend yourself and defend you know your blackness and like your people and like 
it was it was wild because I feel like that really opened my eyes to the fact that like there could be one paragraph in the like eighth chapter of a book that teaches you mm-hmm. something that you have not touched on and have not known because no one else knows it either and like you know somehow like you know some author like discovered it and it's 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 wild like the amount of material that like has gotten like erased or attempted to be completely erased um yeah and like yeah I don't know how to I don't know explore that in deep enough in like even like a semester you know <laughs> exactly and I think it's so much about fighting against that erasure and the tools for survival and I mean Margaret Washington is a legend so any advice from her is more than sound and <laughs> It's part of the reason why, as a prerequisite for the course, um, I assigned Michelle Rolf Trio's Silencing the Past, Power, and the Production of History. And for me, the subtitle says it all, Power and the Production of History, because it centers Haiti for the world in a way that shows us that history is a production, Mm. which means (laughs) that it's the story of the winners, right? And it was my hope that people would come to the class having already thought in a meta way about how it is that Black history, Black people struggling to be free has been kept as a secret when actually it defines our world. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. Um, I feel like that's something I've been thinking so much about is like, what actually is history? You know, what is history as Mm -hmm. we know it? Um, I met with a friend yesterday who's like an artist and his entire thing is like he really loves working in a not a not digital realm but like traditional realm and like he's been painting on like um, old skateboards recently both because Mm -hmm. he thinks of like the history of like the tree's life itself you know this item being like dead it's decay and also the fact it's an old used skateboard and so therefore it has its second life has also led to decay and now he's reviving it for a third time um and it just like really made me like stop and think about like I think the histories that we don't often think about because they're histories that like are just like felt histories you know they're not like necessarily written down um and I think like reflecting in a like a like an academic type historical sense it's it's really weird to like for example I think that was one of the strange things it's like sitting in like academia in a class and like you know, learning about the history of, like, my ancestors, but then having it in this, like, classroom of people that, like, don't share the same ancestors and kind of look through them, at them with this, like, weirdly, like, academic distance lens and how that on kind of, like, offsets what history actually is and, like, I guess, like, the weird way in which, again, history is told by, like, the winners. And so, the history that we continue to pass down, especially passing that history down to the ancestors of the quote unquote winners. It's like this really weird environment to exist in. It's so strange. And like thinking about how much that disrupts the actual purpose of passing down these like histories, you know? Um, yeah, because the question is passing them down to who? Mm. And I think you're right. It's about the question of the descendants of the quote unquote winners, yeah. right? Yeah. And what work they need to do to reckon with what they have inherited, um, which are ill-gotten gains, right? So I think the trees are actually so important, thinking about your friend's skateboard, because 
Metropolitan Ecologies was a frame mm -hmm. that I was trying to give students in this class in order that we could think about the natural environment and the built environment, that we could think about urban representation mm -hmm. and really center non-human ecologies as much as we're looking at human history. Yeah. Okay. So on the syllabus, we have Map to the Door of No Return by Dion Brand. We have The Way to Rainy Mountain by Anne Scott Mamaday, Playing in the Dark by Toni Morrison, Wayward Lives, Beautiful Experiments by Sidia Hartman, and Leslie Marmon Silko's Almanac of the Dead. So there were many other texts, as you know, on the syllabus. Like you said, it's a kind of exhaustive list and there's never enough time to get through anything. But those were the few books that um, I asked students to buy because they were not digital copies available mm -hmm. um, through the library or that we could distribute. So, yeah, it's kind of interesting to think about what resources are available digitally, especially during this pandemic moment. Yeah. Um, and also just like the cost of what it means to have to buy books yeah. for the semester yeah. <laughs> and how different classes require different um, you know, requirements to that yeah. regard and different costs. Yeah. And the lack of access. You know? Yeah, exactly. That's one thing I've really been thinking about is like, I hate that university libraries are not accessible, you know, because like, you know, I'm working on another project right now. And um, a lot of it involves like, you know, historical, like, like research. Um, so mm -hmm. I've been fortunate enough that I still have access to the Cornell libraries, that I oh, can you know, look through it. But like, I, as I was like working on it, I was just thinking like, wow, I only have access because, you know, Tao like helped reinstate that access. But like the fact that like even being like an ex-student isn't, you know, enough to <laughs> deem like a lifetime access to like a yeah. free resource. It just, being it, an alumna. Yeah. It's, and it's so frustrating because it's like the people that could not like might not be able to afford like a place like Cornell or like just co don't go to school period or like. Mm -hmm. It's just so irritating how that access level is never breached, you know? Yeah. Even as alumni, it's like, what, mm -hmm. what are our alumni privileges? Yeah. If not that. Yeah. I get, <laughs> Basically I get, just to, for them to hit us up for money every right? year. I get the donation by email. <laughs> oh my goodness. Already. Uh, right. Wow. Okay. Well, yeah. And that's why it's just been so wonderful in this whole ecosystem of Cornell to think about people like Tamar Evangelistia Doherty, who, as soon as the pandemic happened, she's an associate university librarian at Cornell um, and started around the time that I did, said, let us know ways that we can make things accessible <laughs> for your students. She asked me to send her my syllabi um, so that she could put me in touch with other librarians who were able to, um, yeah, digitize things that ordinarily wouldn't have been available. So yeah. it takes like knowing those people and getting that help, um, especially from someone like Tamar, who pays close attention mm. to this, especially as a Black woman and a curator and archivist. Yeah. So um, yeah, there's so many people that are part of the syllabus um, mm -hmm. beyond the names that we're reading. Yeah. So that reminds me, it was really great to have Leah Sweet join us from the yeah. Johnson Museum and to see the care that she has put into, you know, choosing these different objects, um, artworks from the collection that relate to Black and Indigenous life. Mm -hmm. So that was a really welcome part of the class. 
Yeah, I think so too, especially because, you know, it was heading right into our own curatorial work. Um, and I feel like that was, it was really nice to hear her talk because that's something that she does, you know, like, yeah, <laughs> that's her life. Um, and so to be able to, I feel like after that conversation, I really started to think about um, curatorial work from a different sense of like, I feel like mm -hmm. before, like, you know, going into our exhibition, I was just kind of like, okay, I'd figure out how to like put all this together. Um, yeah. but then, you know, she kind of talks about like the cohesion of mm -hmm. of, of like you know collections um right. and how to like kind of guide and all like guide and like audience or like viewership into the world of you know her exhibit or whatever she's working on um and I really liked her seeing like the plans for like yeah you know, I thought that was really cool <laughs> exactly to see the technical part of it and yeah. the beauty of it is she attended our dark lab um launch party yeah, yeah. so on zoom and she was inspired to look through the collection in that way and i yeah. think you know as someone who is not black or indigenous that was really meaningful to see that you know people at the university are taking on the responsibility mm -hmm. of interrogating these systems and how we display yeah. hang different artwork so it was really beautiful that she was able to give us an actual room at the yeah. museum in order to actually have these images yeah. these paintings that we chose sculptures yeah. so our own um you know exhibition to go alongside the course yeah and I think that takes us nicely to week four which I entitled cityscapes and soundscapes so black and indigenous Harlem and Minneapolis and in that week I feel like it was very heavy because we were thinking about City of Hartman's wayward lives. Mm -hmm. There was ongoing trauma in Minneapolis. Um, and it also was the week that the first paper was due. So I think it was the perfect moment in the semester for students to be able to think about all of these collected texts mm -hmm. and what it means to twin the city spaces of Harlem and Minneapolis. Mm -hmm to think about the layers of violence, to think about George Floyd, to think about Somali communities in Minneapolis, um, mm -hmm. and also to think about um, Lenape presence in the Bronx as mm -hmm. much as African-American presence and wayward women in the early 1900s. Mm -hmm. And then the week after that was titled Visuality and Archives Beyond Coloniality. Um, and it was week six, so reading Almanac of the Dead. Ethno or Sociopoetics by Sylvia Winter. So yeah, that was the week of the 600 plus page book, um, <laughs> which I assigned, you know, not thinking that everyone would get through it, but mm. really hoping that students would take it on because there was two weeks to read and that it's about 30 years since Leslie Marmon Silko published that book. Yeah. And in one part of it, she even reflects on the um, 1918 flu yeah. an epidemic um and so much of what she says is like a chorus for and of the dead that yeah. continues to be um resonant yeah yeah that was a heavy week as well yeah definitely. um so yeah that takes us to the next week which was uh diasporic african and amerindian unmapping and mobility in trinidad and tobago this was a really fun week right <laughs> yeah, so we read um Map to the Door of No Return by Dion Brand, who happened to be um, the winner of a huge award with a, a you know, generous mm -hmm. cash prize for her work. 
um, as a poet and writer for decades. So maybe you can say a bit about Maya Cozier and Abigail Hadid. Um, so Maya Cozier, she's a Trinidadian um, filmmaker, and I think she's currently at uh, Columbia University for like a master's in, mm-hmm. I don't know their program name, but it's basically filmmaking. Yeah. Um, and she's she was so cool. She was so cool. Um, mm-hmm. I was that was such an honor to like listen to her. I, I really liked how like she also wasn't too much older than me. Um, so it was like really cool to hear from like a younger person as well. I think the variety of individuals that you welcome to your class. It was a really it was a really nice selection. And so like hearing from like a younger like an art like a younger artist about her experience. Um, in filmmaking because you know I'm a filmmaker as well but our experience with it has both been like very very different um but hearing about her you know going back to Trinidad to like shoot um her like I think it was her thesis film in school and like the mm-hmm. process of that was so so special like that was very that was very very cool and she followed me back on Instagram <laughs> oh great yeah, yeah mine's amazing <laughs> cool um, and then Abigail, Abigail Hadid. So Abigail was actually, you know, the winner of our competition. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really loved hearing Abigail speak because, you know, I had been in email correspondence with her for so long beforehand. So to actually like meet her in the flesh and hear her discuss her work was such a privilege and so special. And like her, you know, she's the most, she's such a humble artist, you know, she is so humble. Yeah. For, having the body of work that she does the breadth of work like 30 years under her belt documenting yes. on the Indian Mastans is so wow like she's an expert you know and you know hearing her discuss like her reasonings for like black and white and like the contrast and hearing about like how she frames a photograph you know like because I think one thing that really stands about stands out about her photographs is like the composition feeling so planned like a painting you know like and her her attention to like what she wants the lens to focus on and what she wants the camera to like you know I guess like narrate in a way um is so cool like there's that one picture she has where it feels like the only thing that's like fully in focus is like the is like one part of the face all centered around this like eye the eye of like, this old man like sitting and I think yeah. like or something um yes that one just blows my mind. But like yeah. hearing her actually talk about it and like her thought process and the connection she feels to her subjects. Yeah. Really cool. <laughs> really cool. And the way that she told us, oh, it was that person, that older man, it was his birthday recently mm-hmm. and he's 94. Yeah. That she knows the names of these people. She has, yeah. you know, spent this time with them for over 30 years yeah. and has documented them. Yeah. Um, it's so intimate. And it was really powerful to be able to hear Abigail Hadid talk about Warriors of Huracan, mm-hmm. which is a really powerful set of photographs. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, I guess that brings us to the the next week, which was a bit amorphous because we had Lab Day. Um, mm. But maybe you could say a bit about uh, Jezediah or Jesse yeah. sound production. Um, I'm not sure if you were there with us for that session. I was. But even if you could speak to, um, I guess, like, working with sound over yeah. Zoom. Yeah. So, um, Jesse, uh, one of your old students, um, yeah, so they came in and they, like, helped, you know, s- teach about the process of, like, 
editing through um what was it what what did we use it was GarageBand we used GarageBand yeah I thought that was really cool because as someone like who has casually dabbled in GarageBand um I didn't realize all the things that you could do with it because you know I feel like (laughs) those editing software programs are so intimidating because they are so much happening and I can't and it's it's very much about like knowing and it's it's a new it's an instrument in and of itself you know and it's mm-hmm. very much about, like knowing the ins and outs of it so it was really special to have you know jesse come and kind of give us a really quick like breakdown tutorial um and kind of then thinking about sound um and how sound works with like zoom um that was kind of another challenging thing i think more so for your students was the collaborative effort of having to work together on a project that involves like sound but it's all like virtual um just because I think like so much could go wrong and so much has to do with like what each individual has on hand and like their own personal like abilities um and then trying to like come together and collaborate but I think what's also cool about it is that since it already is digital like fortunately it is like pretty easy once you get in the stride of it I think to figure it out and um work collaboratively on it yeah I totally agree I think it it is intimidating but once someone like Jesse is able to open it up for you then it sort of becomes a question of how much you want to teach yourself and how much you want to know and how much time you're willing to devote to it so I feel like I've been emboldened to explore GarageBand when <laughs> I never had. And yeah. also learning from Jesse that it's essentially the same as Logic Pro. Yeah. Um, and if you know how to use one, you'll know how to use the other. So yeah, that was really great to be able to hear from him. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'll go quickly through the next few weeks okay. so that just for the sake of time. Okay. Um, but feel free to stop me if there's anything that you wanted to highlight so um week nine was entitled theorizing erotic geographies and black studies and native studies so there we were led by tiffany lathabo king and her book the black shoals as well as reading barbara christian's race for theory and we were visited by a cross which was a mm. special delight mm. um yeah, let's talk about Accra and his work as a juror for the Dark Lab inaugural photo competition. So, um, Accra Chef photographer, they, uh, they were that was really cool. He was, I was really happy that you brought him into the class because such a personality, you know, like he. Yeah. I love how he introduced himself as a talker. He was like, "That's my thing." I didn't realize <laughs> that other people weren't good at talking. I didn't realize other people couldn't talk, but that's my talent. And hearing that, and like. Hearing how he uses that as a, in a tool with his like photography was really cool because I think he's another one kind of like Abigail who like actually does pay attention and focus on the individual not as just a subject but as like a person to like and sincerely engage with. Um, yeah. And because of that engagement, I think he was able to get a really like private look into the lives of those that he documented. Um, and his work was super cool because, you know, he showed those pictures of that, like, makeshift, like, house that that couple, like, yeah. you know, built for, like, you know, the migrant workers that were coming to, you know, work on their land. And, like, hearing about, like, hearing him talk about how, like, private and, like, conservative this, like, group is, but 
the fact that they opened their home, one of the most like mm-hmm. personal things you could do to him to come in and like document and then share for like thousands of people to see. Um, yeah. It was really cool. And I think I really liked his thing about um, the eyes, you know, closing, like his subjects keep their eyes closed. Right. Uh, because it had to do with like the vulnerability and the connection and how he doesn't want them to feel like he's extracting from them. So he wants them to feel safe in his like arms, quote unquote. Um, that was really cool. And I think that was a big theme overall, now that I think about it, in the class, mm. like the lens and the eyes. <laughs> so the next week is called A South-South Lens, Geology, Opacities, and Infrastructures of Apocalypse. And I think equally we were thinking about a kind of fish-eye lens and perspective mm. because Accra gives us these Mexican and South American indigenous workers who yeah. are in Kentucky doing this dangerous farm work. Yeah. And, you know, Macarena Barris Gomez gives us um, the extractive zone, which was assigned for that week. She gives us the Amazon and different tribes in the Amazon and how they are able to be protected by um, people not knowing yeah. <laughs> that they exist. Yeah. to extract um, their land and natural resources. Yeah. So, yeah, I just, I loved that we had the chance to think with and th- through different artists to ask this question in the Southern Hemisphere mm. as well. So that week, we also had Shannon Mattern as a guest who talked about glimmer and geology Um yeah, that was pretty wonderful and eye-opening to think about all of the different ways in which, you know, rocks mm. are our history yeah. <laughs> in terms of the planet, and we're all connected through these different tectonic plates. Yeah. So week 11, we were visited by Ned Blackhawk, who gave a master class, mm. and that was undergirded by a reading of Crossing Waters, Crossing Worlds. Um, So Liana, one of the students, gave a really beautiful presentation for week 11, um, thinking about that book being Mm. so monumental for both Black studies and Native studies. And one thing that Liana did, which was really powerful, was that she played part of a clip Mm. from an event that you and I um, organized which was a conversation between Holiday Simmons and Melanin Muskogee, a.k.a. Amber Starks. Mm. So that was um, moderated by Professor Shania Cordes. And um, really, it was the vision of Tiffany Lafado King who came to me and said, these are two activists who are looking at questions of sexuality, ecology, and they are both Black Indigenous. They're Black Mm. Indians. Um, We want to hear their perspective. So yeah, maybe do you want to reflect a little bit on what it was like to be working behind the scenes for such an incredible yeah. event? Um, that was that was a really cool event. I was taking notes for it, and so like the entire time, my hands were just like flying across the keyboard, trying to like, <laughs> like everything they were saying. Um, there was so much to be gained from it. I know you and I would like talk about it for like weeks after the fact. Like we just mm-hmm. kept like reflecting on it. Um, I think like one thing that really stood out to me was the concept of ongoing genocide you know Mm. like how white supremacy and colonialism 
has like gotten to the point where it's self-sustaining in a way, you know, and um, the, what did, like the, what did they say? Like the lateral fissions, you know, the fissions that are going like in a horizontal way, like between groups and populations, like that are all contributing to like anti-blackness that just contributes to this overall tension between all these different like groups of people and populations when there is literally like one quote unquote enemy and that enemy is like whiteness. So we need to head in a vertical sense. That was just so powerful, you know, like, and also what I really loved about, what I really love about, like, I think most, if not all of the Dark Lab, like, talks and discussions is, like, the lack of pretense, you know, and, like, the realness that comes from it. And I think that, like, everyone that attends them can kind of gauge that. You can really see it in the comments. That's one thing I really love like, what people are saying in like the comments of zoom and it's like always the same stuff it's like wow this is healing this is really special this is really cool because i feel like like you're we get to discuss history in a sense that's not overtly academic but like and when i use academic i mean academic in a way that like i think has been upheld by like predominantly like white institutions um Mm -hmm. and so it's cool because it's we get to discuss our history in our way and we don't feel like we have to sugarcoat it and we don't feel like we have to like change what we want to say. We can just say whatever we want. And I think that really came through in that one in particular, maybe because they were also friends, you know, I think that was another really special thing about it was like, they were like, yeah, we, you know, we were just at each other's like house for like dinner the other night talking about this. And like, you know, just like it was, it felt so personal being able to sit in on like a friend's discussion. Yeah. And with two people who really wanted to get to know each other better Mm -hmm. um, because they had never had an opportunity to just, you know, have a conversation. (laughs) And I felt it was deeply instructive because the more and more that I do this work, you know, my own research, the books that I'm writing are on Afro-Asian relationality. Mm -hmm. But I understand the fact that the question of erasure yeah. has to be related to the question of solidarity in that people tend to erase or ignore the fact that when you have two groups, there are also people who might share both lineages. Yeah. So I thought it was really powerful to be able to just sit back and listen, yeah. to give the floor to someone like Amber, to someone like Holiday, yeah. to be able to say their piece about yeah. how hard it is to exist in a family with Black and Native ancestors, yeah. and to think about um, anti-Blackness within one's own family, yeah. right, in terms of the Native sides of their family, and what those different holidays are like, what yeah. Thanksgiving is like, um, at different dinner tables. Because yeah. I feel that if we want to do the work of solidarity, we have to understand that people exist who are both, and the kind of anti-Blackness that they face Shania, mm-hmm. who's also Afro-Indigenous, um, Amber and Holiday is very different than people who are of Native and European yeah. ancestry. Yeah, right. They're That's facing true. a different kind of questioning about whether they're Native enough or yeah. not and how yeah. they look and questions of blood quantum cut differently for people who are Black yeah. than people who are of European descent and mixed heritage. Okay, so next we had another lab day in which students were working on the sound sculpture. And then, I mean, that brings us to right about where we are now. 
<laughs> so last week was the final class, May 11th, and I entitled it Sound and Vision Out of Sync, Dark Ecologies and the Underside of Paradise. Mm. So students had to read um, an interview, Landscaping with Nadia Huggins and Richard Fung, and they were to watch Black Mother, a film by Kalika La on mm. available on Canopy. So yeah, why don't we talk first a bit about Nadia Huggins and um, her role within the Dark Laboratory photograph competition, and then we can talk about Kalika La. Okay. So Nadia Huggins was another one of our winners for um, the Dark Laboratory Photographic uh, Narrative Essay Competition. And um, her work that at least we you know had for the competition was all surrounding like water and these very, very rich colors of like blues and greens. Um, and she was documenting these boys that were like, you know, standing on rocks and then jumping into the water. And I think what I found really special about like her work and her submission is like the writing that went along with it. Um, and like the, how poetic it felt and how like connected it felt with the photographs themselves. Um, but her, her work is just so cool. And I think what was also cool was when, um, you know, Abigail came to our class and even mentioned Nadia, like, and mm-hmm. talking about like, you know, her ability for color, like specifically like, noting that Nadia is outstanding with color. And I have yeah. to agree with that. Um, very, very special work there. It's so true. And then Nadia is included in this book, Black Futures. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, which is so exciting to see that she's being celebrated beyond um, her own native St. Mm. Vincent and mm. Trinidad and Tobago, where she grew up, that there's a national and international audience for just like stunning images yeah. by her. So then, uh, so yeah, I mean, I felt like it was fitting <laughs> regarding metropolitan ecologies that we ended with Halika Law. Yeah. Because he's a filmmaker that is rooted so deeply within New York City, obviously, mm-hmm. but he is also, you know, intimately giving us Kingston as an urban metropolis city center, but also the countryside in that mm-hmm. film, Black Mother. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Could you say a bit about Black Mother and what it was like to introduce Kalikala and to be able to speak with him for the master class that we had to conclude mm-hmm. the semester? Okay, so I think uh, Kalika Law was probably, I think Kalika Law was one of my, if not my actual favorite, one of my favorites of like all of the talks. Um, because just like hearing about like, you know, his filmmaking process and hearing about Black Mother. And I think what really stood out to me was ha- like how he talked about how he finally found someone that was willing to like shoot, like let him shoot like her giving birth. Um, and like, you know, the, stars aligning to like permit all of that to happen and like the reasoning behind it and like the way that he broke it into like three trimesters I feel like he just has such a brilliant mind for storytelling because he doesn't feel limited to a traditional format I think that really stood out to me he talked about how like you know filmmaking is such a new art form and so there are no rules and all art forms there are no rules for it you know but a lot of other art forms that have been around for like thousands of years have this like consistency where a lot of it has you know already been done there's a lot of techniques that are already nailed down whereas like with filmmaking since it is so new and since it is constantly evolving with what you can do with it um I think the experimental side of his work very much stands out in a way that doesn't feel like forced experimental but 
authentically, this is a story I want to tell you. This is how I'm going to tell it to you. And now I want you to feel it. Um, his usage of, you know, desynchronizing the audio with the visual and like, you know, editing the audio first. That was so fascinating. When he talked about yeah. editing the audio wow. first, my <laughs> mind was like low-key blown because I was just like, how? <laughs> like that, like, I feel like for me, editing the audio is the most like stressful part of something. Um, and so hearing that like, he he leans towards that first and that almost determines the length of his films because mm-hmm. then he overlays it with the visuals um, was really, really cool, especially because, you know, Black Mother like has footage from his summers in Jamaica and going back and like the most personal, personal, personal memories, you know, are input in that because he shot them when he was like a kid, when he was young. Like, you know, I think, it, was it his grandfather's funeral? Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. 2012. Like, pretty mind blowing. Um, I also really like how, like, his variants of, like, cameras and equipment, you yeah. know, including, like, Super 8 to, like, digital, that was really cool. And hearing him talk about it. Yeah, it was cool to hear him talk about technique. And it just reminds me that storytelling is so critical to this lab that mm. also for the course, you know, metropolitan ecologies, Black and Indigenous, this all comes together in terms of thinking about maroons. And that's Maroons from, you know, Virginia to Brazil to Jamaica to Haiti, all of the places in the world that you find Maroons, that they have survived against white supremacy, against all odds for centuries. And many of them are as much as being African, like of indigenous heritage, too, sometimes. So in some ways, I think the fact that Kalika Law puts Maroons on camera to narrate their own sense of history is really powerful because that sense of history has to be about the trees and the bats and the geological formations that really protected them to be able to hide from the British, the Spanish, the Dutch. Um, And I feel like Kalikala understands that. And maybe each of our different guests understands that. And that's why their stories are so urgent to tell. Yeah, definitely. Wow, I loved having Kalika Law, though. That was so special. It was so cool. Oh, that was crescendo, cool. right? <laughs> Actually, more sincerely. Yeah. I think how his work builds on itself. And it, it's like yes. each other. That was so special, too. Is I think that might just be a continuity of like all the artists. was yeah. like how driven they were to document what they were documenting to the extent that they were doing it for years and years, just like mm-hmm. building and getting deeper yeah. and deeper. Because the depths that they reached with it is like... Maybe for each of them. Yeah. And we really- just got a little sliver of that journey mm-hmm. and story. Mm-hmm. Like for Maya, for Ned, for... Yeah, everyone. That yeah. It's a, a passion, a dedication, a calling, yeah. and a vocation. Yeah, and I think that's why um, hearing them talk about it was cool. And also, like, going back to Maya, I loved how she talked about the sounds and how there's, like, you know, one person in Trinidad has, like, a collection of, like, all the sounds because, like, what was it like an Oscar like nominated like sound like right had lived there for like seven years and had taught so many people so there's just like a lot of people that like are into like audio engineering and like that side of filmmaking there and like the mass collection to build a soundscape of natural sounds is really cool yeah Yeah, it's really beautiful to see all of the hard work that goes into making these archives Mm. um for us to be able to use and I guess just to conclude, I would say that 
honestly, this has been a dream class. Mm -hmm. And I mean that literally in the sense that I kind of feel like I didn't write the syllabus. Like it chose me in my dreams. It came together based on knowing that this would have to be the order. These would be the key people, Black and Indigenous scholars, writers, authors who have given something to the world. And for me, that formed a constellation. Yeah. So. Yeah. yeah, that's exactly what it felt like. <laughs> you write about the order. I felt like the order was perfect. It was so cool. And it all came together last minute because that's how the course came together. But yeah. in some ways, I don't think it could have been more perfect, the timing, how everything was executed. Mm. So I'm excited for the final presentation such that we can think about this question of burial yeah. as not only a kind of grounds for sorrow, but also for celebration of life and Black and Native life in particular. Dirge Black and Indigenous Hemispheric Burial was made possible through a seminar that was taught by Tali Goff through the Mellon Collaborative Studies in Architecture, Urbanism, and the Humanities Program at Cornell University. We are thankful to the collective passion of our many collaborators and folks that we have been in conversation with. For more information and to experience the sound sculpture, as well as to read the peer-reviewed journal article that accompanies the work, go to www.darklaboratory.com slash dirge.